You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. We're so glad you're here with us. Welcome, everybody, watching at home live online right now on a mountain or a beach somewhere. We hope it's snowing or raining wherever you are. And anyway, we're glad you're with us, though. It is good to be here with you. We're in our second week of the Treasure Principle, and I want to start by asking you a quick question. Ready? Question is this. What is one thing you wanted to own when you grew up? So take yourself back to your childhood. Some of you are like, I'm waiting to grow up, Pastor. I know, I know. Wives, keep your elbows to yourselves. Maybe you're not there yet. That's fine. When I was younger, I don't know where I came across this. One of my friend's dads bought a Porsche 911, and I didn't like it. I didn't. I actually wasn't all that impressed. I thought it was just loud and annoying. But one of the neighbors, like the next neighborhood over, owned a Lamborghini. I, see, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And that Lamborghini, once in a while, would just kind of drive by, and you'd hear, and you'd just watch that thing, and I'd think, oh, I gotta have that car someday. So when I grew up, I bought myself a Ford Focus wagon. Because that's as close as I was. I got a couple of those little matchbox deals. But anyway, when I was like, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 years old, my dad, uh, he worked for Prudential and uh, he, he managed one of their offices and he'd bring in the real Santa Claus and his wife every single year. And uh, we'd climb up in Santa's lap. And, uh, and, and one, when I got about that age, I thought I'd be cool. So I just started saying, what I want for Christmas Santa is I want a Lamborghini with a million dollars in the glove compartment. Because that to me sounded like what I wanted when I grew up. Every time I do a wedding as a pastor, I'm sitting down with a couple and the lady, she's been dreaming about this for not just a year or months, but for decades. Every Disney movie she watched, every Hallmark movie, God bless us men, that she's watched, she's had this vision in her mind of what the day is gonna look like and how she wants that day to go and to be perfect in every way, shape, or form. What was it for you? Do you remember? I say, here's what I wanna talk about as we're going through the series of Treasure Principle. What most of us find is the moment that we decide whatever that thing is, we start to aim our life on a trajectory towards that thing. So the way this played out for me in high school is I started envisioning myself one day being an attorney, one day being a lawyer, uh, and then I found out that it's not like a few good men and you don't just get to sit around and yell at people all the time, that you actually just do a lot of reading and writing. And I was like, man, okay, that's not me. So then I'm gonna own a business. I'm gonna own a hotel. Like, could you see me as the next president of the United States? I mean, wouldn't that be cool? So... I just had this trajectory of my life. I'm gonna bring in all this money. I'm gonna do all this cool stuff. I'm gonna have all this stuff. I'm buy my Lamborghini one day. That was my goal. And then God called me into ministry and he flipped the whole story upside down for me. And I don't have one regret except for if you have a Lamborghini, can I just take a ride, please? That's it, that's all I want. But what I wanna do today is I wanna jump into one of the hardest to understand texts that Jesus teaches in the entire Bible. I want to give you enough nuggets to dig into it, read it for yourself, wrestle with it on your own. I've wrestled with the story over and over and over again as a church. So for those of you visiting with us today or watching at home online, our desire as a church is to be surrendered to God, to look more and more like Jesus because God told us Jesus is the perfect man. That's what we all ought to strive to be like. So I wanna understand his teachings. I wanna understand his ways. I wanna understand what he's really trying to say. And some of his stories are confusing. Have you noticed that? Because he taught in what's called parables. 
Parables are stories that have a meaning, and you have to extrapolate the meaning in order to get sometimes what Jesus is saying. And we're going to look at one of those today. So before we go any further, let's pray for God to show up in this place, give us our Lamborghini, I mean, show up in this place, stir in our hearts, and to do whatever he intends to do with us. Let's pray. Father, right now, would you teach us to surrender? It's not easy, God. It's hard. And so, Father, sometimes our lives don't turn out the way we thought they would. Sometimes our lives don't always look the way we thought they ought to look. But today, Father, would you do something in us? Would you make sure that we can't leave the way we came in, that we are transformed by who you are today? God, give me words. Give me ideas. Give me illustrations. Maybe even ones I didn't have planned, Father, to make this story come alive. We ask all this in Jesus' name. All God's people say, amen. So we're going to begin giving you a quick review of last week and me just confessing up front, I was wrong last week. How's that for the beginning of a sermon? Here's what I was wrong about. We handed out a book called The Treasure Principles. Somebody in our church donated those. And if you didn't get one, I encourage you to go online and buy them. They're not that expensive. We gave all our copies out. And we bought more and we gave all those out. So I'm excited that you're going through them. But in The Treasure Principle, I told you last week, Treasure Principle number one was actually the definition of the Treasure Principle. Here is the definition of the Treasure Principle. It means this. The Treasure Principle is this. You can't take anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. The whole idea here is that in this life, we accumulate stuff Wealth, houses, cars, clothes, money, whatever it is, and you can't take it with you. Either Jesus comes back and it all stays, or you die, you go home, and it all stays, but no matter what, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And just to give you an illustration of this, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse, four, verse 12, he says this, then Jesus said to his host, and we're looking at the middle of a story here, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, or your relatives, Okay, so many of you are going to go to lunch after church. How many of you have lunch planned with your spouse, your children, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins? He goes on, or your rich neighbors? If you do, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid. Okay, is that such a bad thing? I mean, like, if I buy, I, I say this every time, every time I go to lunch or breakfast with anybody, I say, and, and I buy, I always say, and they always, oh, no, Pastor, you don't have to buy, no, 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 I got this one, you got the next one, we go to Ruth's Chris. <laughs> I don't even know if there is a Ruth's Chris around here. I need to start saying a better restaurant. But that's exactly, even though I'm joking, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get to. Don't just take your family to lunch. Don't just take your neighbors to lunch. Don't just take your friends to lunch, especially if they have more resources, because if you do, they might pay you back. You're like, well, why is that such a bad thing? Well, from a business standpoint, it's not. I'm gonna eat, I wanna eat with my family. It all has to do with this little thing right here. It all has to do with why are you doing it, where is it coming from, and what does God want to do in the world? But then he goes on, he clarifies it. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. How? By partnering with God at what he's doing in the world. So why the crippled and the lame and the beggar and the blind? Well, in Jesus' day, actually a little different than America, in Jesus' day, if you didn't have health, whole bodies, a lot of times you were stuck with no options but to depend on other people. They didn't have the kind of resources, systems, or medical care that we have today. 
So many times, the streets would be lined on the way to the temples with beggars. And people were actually commanded, especially the Pharisees, the religious teachers, were commanded to give alms. But they actually had money they would set aside in order to give to those people. And many times they would give them with great shows of look how awesome I am and how much money I'm giving in alms to the poor. But even beyond that, you were dependent on them. So somebody would show up early in the morning, they'd drop you off, you had to figure out how to care for them and then move on about your day. Jesus is trying to say, when you throw big parties, don't throw big parties for people who are just going to tell you how great you are. Instead, throw parties for people that nobody else will throw a party for. Why is that important? Because what you're doing is bringing heaven to earth. You're giving value where others have taken value. You're showing love where others have shown no love. Why is that important? Well, it all gets into today's principle. Treasure principle number one, the true treasure principle number one, not the one I accidentally called last week, is this. God owns everything and I'm his money manager. Now, I know that's hard to kind of grasp and accept, especially if you're still kind of figuring out this God thing. I realize right now there are people watching online or in this room who do not believe in God yet. They're just not on board with this Jesus thing. So you're still asking questions, still trying to figure it out. Some of you, however, you've been doing this, maybe it's six months or a year, maybe some of you are 10 years or so, and some of you have been doing this for a whole lifetime. So you're at different places along this journey. But where this comes from is this. In the very beginning, before God created everything, he created everything out of nothing. I know that's kind of a hard concept to get, but when he created, he created everything out of nothing. God didn't take things that were existence. The universe has not been around forever. He didn't take things in existence and move them around. He brought the universe out of nothing. We use the phrase ex nihilo or ex nihilo to do that. Out of nothing, God brought something. So you and I create, we build things. I go in the backyard, build snowballs or mud balls. My, parent, my kids like to play in the dirt. Or we take Legos or we take wood or whatever it is. We're always manipulating things that God already made. So we're creating, but we're creating out of his creation, whether it's paint or clay or whatever it might be. But, When God did it, he did it on another thing. And when he did it, he did it and left the creation with a super abundance. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's more than enough food for the squirrels. There's more than enough food for the lions. There's more than enough food for the animals. And yet we as Americans, people, humans, are told there's not enough for us. So we better get off this planet before the aliens come or we destroy it. We gotta get out of here. But did you know that actually the universe, the world, has enough to meet all of our needs? The problem isn't whether God's creation has enough. The problem actually has to do with the human heart. We have hijacked the story of God and really made it our own. So now what we have is while God's uh, creation doesn't just have the bare minimum, God's creation actually has a superabundance to it, but instead we've hijacked God's story and we've hoarded for ourselves. What Jesus is coming to do is to try to blow up the model and say, hey, what if we stopped living selfishly? And what if we actually partnered with how God intended for the universe to look? There's more than enough resources for everybody. If we'll just be who God called us to be, do what God called us to do, there's literally enough for everyone. This story of Jesus that he's getting to in Luke chapter 14, I think it was, yeah, Luke 14, is he's trying to help us understand. See, the problem with most of us is that we want to use more to get more. So now let's get to the really hard story. 
Because the foundation I'm trying to lay, the thing we want to build on and stand on, is this idea that God owns everything, and I'm only a manager. The, the biblical phrase there is steward of all that God has. So what does that actually mean? Let's go to the place that most clearly says this. So there's many, 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 many passages. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible, digital or paper, I don't care, open to Matthew 25. We're going to show this to you. You can look for yourself, make sure I'm not crazy, because I'll summarize some of the story. And if you don't know how to find Matthew 25, no worries. It'll all be, everything we're reading will be on here. You can go back and look at home later today. So let me set the groundwork for this this conversation. Matthew 25 follows Matthew 24. Aren't you glad I dropped that Bible knowledge on you for the day? Which actually follows Matthew 23. And while I could keep going, in Matthew 23 and 24, we find the setup for Matthew 25. What's happening is Jesus is having his final conversation with the disciples before he goes to the cross. He goes to something called the Mount of Olives, which he's gone to many times before, which is very relevant for Bible prophecy. Because the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, tells us that the Son of Man, when he comes, will be on this mount, the Mount of Olives. There's actually a grave site there where Hebrew people, some Jewish people, actually have buried themselves because they're waiting for the Messiah to come and they want to be close to him when he shows up. We know he already came and his name is Jesus. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, he's saying something, he's fulfilling prophecy, saying, I'm here, and he's teaching, and he's letting people know there's going to come a day where I'm leaving, and I will come back. So he tells a series of stories and illustrations, they're parables, that are intended to each make a different point. Now, some of them make the big point the same. I'm leaving I'm going to be gone a long time, but I will come back. And when I come back, there will be accountability for everybody. So each story then lets you know a little bit different detail of what's important. One day I'm going to come back. It's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to come upon you suddenly. You're not going to know when. So therefore, be morally pure and morally ready for my return. Because you may not have decades. You may not have centuries. You may not have millennia. You don't know the day or the hour. So be ready for the bridegroom to appear. And then we get to Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus says this. Verse 15. Again. And the reason he says again is this isn't the first illustration he gave about this. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted and entrusted his wealth to them. So the man apparently is wealthy because he has servants. You only had servants that hey, if, if you were wealthy. So he has people working for him. And he's gonna call them in. He says, I'm gonna be gone a long time, and while I'm gone, I'm giving you all that's mine. But here's how that looks. Verse 15. To one he gave five bags of gold. Now the, the Greek here does not say bags of gold. The reason the New International Version gave you this translation is so you wouldn't be confused. The word there is actually talent. But because we have things like America's Got Talent and talent shows for like your kids that aren't really all that talented at times, you ever see a talent show? As a student pastor, we do those, and it's like, oh, this is painful. Let's get it on video so we can show it to them later. Okay, so anyway, talent in America doesn't mean what talent in that day meant. Talent was a form of money, and it's debatable exactly how much a talent was worth. Some have estimated that one talent today would be worth like $1.2 million, give or take. We don't know. Many uh, scholars will tell you it represented 20 to 25 years worth of salary, which in our day, thank you very much, doctors and Eli, we live a lot longer than they used to live back then. 
So basically, it represented a lifetime's worth of salary. However you want to measure that. The only reason it's relevant is to the first servant, he gave, you know, we call it five to seven million. You'd call it five lifetimes worth of money. However you look at it. To the second one, he gave two bags. And to another, he gave one bag, each according to what? Their ability. One of the major problems we have in this life, all of us, Matt Nickerson included, is we look at other people and we want what they have. We call it jealousy, envy, right? Maybe, just maybe, that God didn't give it to you because he knew you couldn't handle it. And the closer you get to God, the more okay with that you're gonna be. There are people in this church who are far better business leaders than I am. They are far wiser, perhaps, with money or just great investors. They know what they're doing in those ways. And I thank God that he brought you here. But there's no jealousy in that. We see this in the lottery all the time. By the way, we see this in sports all the time. Sometimes when people get too much money too quick and they're not ready for it, it doesn't bless them, it curses them. Because they don't know what to do. This is why guys like Buffett and this is why guys like uh, Bill Gates and others are trying not to leave their multi, multi multi-billion dollars to their families because they don't want that to happen to them. They're just gonna leave, say, a billion or so each, you know, if only. But anyway, the point here is all of us have a different ability and the master knows you. Remember, this is a parable, a story intended to reflect God to us in some way. So then he went on his journey. Now, the man, verse 16, who had received five bags of gold went at once and put the money to work and gained five bags more. Immediately, this man knew, I've got to make something of what the master has given me. He entrusted me. So notice he didn't wait a week, a month, a year. He didn't like go out and throw a party and then get around to it. Like he said he's going to be gone a while. I don't know. No, immediately he got to work. Same with the man with two bags. So also the one with two bags, verse 17, of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, what's gonna happen next? If you know the story, give me some grace here, because there'll be many people in the room who don't know the story. What happens next is the master is gone a long time, and we don't know how long. That's the point of the story also. The master is gonna be gone a long time, and one day, like a thief in the night, he's gonna come back and say, what did you do with what I gave you? But it brings up a lot of really good questions. Does God care about my money? Does God really care if I make a lot of money? The one who had five makes five more. The one who has two makes two more. The one who has one doesn't do anything with it. So when the master comes back, he says, what did you do with what I gave you? And the one who had five brought him five and five more and said, master, here you go. I worked hard. I doubled what you gave me. And the master looks at him and he says, well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now let me put you in charge of many more. If you've been at Kingsway for any length of time, you've heard me say this phrase. I just one day want to get to heaven and hear God say, well done. I'm quoting Matthew 25. I just want to hear Jesus say, good job. But does God care about my money? How much of what God gave me am I supposed to double? Like, I got to feed my family. What exactly does this mean? Well, this passage, while Jesus is clearly using a money analogy, it's not just about money. 
It has to do with stewardship. How am I taking all that the master gave me, understanding who he is, and trying to partner with him in what he wants done? How do I know? Well, the way I really figure this out is by looking at the third servant. The first two immediately get to work, immediately double what the master gave them, both give back to the master what they started with and the double, and the master says, well done, now come into your master's happiness. Again, he's referring to heaven. He's referring to eternal life. The greatest gift God gives is not bigger houses. It's not a Lamborghini. The greatest gift God gives is himself. And so when the two faithful servants give back to him what God gave them plus, he says, well done, come and join me. But look at what happens with the other servant. Look at verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown a gathering where you've not gathered seed. Okay, first of all, Jesus is teaching us theology through a story. So this man shows up and he says, okay, master, I know you're in control, I'm not. And I know that you're a hard man. Now, any of you have hard bosses that you work for? Some of you are like, yes, but he's in the room, so I'm not gonna shake my head. Okay, I get it. God is not like your boss. How do I know? Because your boss is a God. He may be Christian, he may be a great Christian, but he's not God. So in some form or fashion, he's not complete representation of who God is. So don't read a one-to-one correlation there. What I do know is, Jesus is trying to tell us something about God. God is grace. God is mercy. God is love. He's also a hard man. He's also a boss, a master, a leader who holds his employees, his servants accountable. Is that bad? No, that's good. How do I know? Because God does it. And this servant gets that about him. I know that you were a hard man. I knew you were gonna be gone a really, really long time. I didn't know how long, But then he also tells us this. I know that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. I don't grow much of anything. I'm not good with my hands in that way. I can grow weeds with the best of them, and I don't pull them well either. But just don't drive by my house and look at the garden beds. Like, it's a true story. But what this is saying is phenomenal to me. I don't even know what to do with it. I'm gonna be honest. Can you produce corn from a field where corn seeds have never been planted? It's a simple question. The answer is no. Can you grow strawberries in a field where strawberry seeds have never been planted? No. But this servant knows the master. Remember, the master represents God, and he's saying, I know you're a hard man. You expected me to be faithful to you, and I know that you can do anything. You can do the impossible. You can literally bring about things that cannot exist. The reason that's a problem is because it tells us that the servant has a right understanding of who God is, but instead of following on his understanding of who God is, he lived his life in fear. Notice verse 25. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See? Here is what belongs to you. I knew you were a hard man. I knew that you could do the impossible. But instead of combining those two things into faith, 
I chose to bury what you gave me and only bring that back to you. I was afraid that I would fail you by doing nothing. Okay, think about your life for a second. What are you doing with what God gave you? Do you believe that God is a hard man? He's not just grace. He's not just love. He is that. But he's also a hard man. He will one day hold all of us accountable for what we did with what he gave us. Do you believe that God owns it all? That everything you have is a gift from him for you to steward for him? And what are you doing with what he gave you? So then the master responds. Verse 26. And the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Those are pretty strong words. So let me just get this straight. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown. You know that I gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Does God care if when he comes back, you could say, look at my bank account, God. Don't miss the point of the story. The point of the story is not about how much money you make. The point of the story is whether or not you understand who the master is, what he desires to do in the world, and how you're partnering with him in that endeavor. The point here is simply that God is a farmer who doesn't even need seed to succeed. This is why for centuries, Christian missionaries have gone all over the world to places where they were told they shouldn't go. There's no way they could succeed. Some of them have died doing it. But it's because they believed that God can bring good from evil, light from dark, life from death, joy from pain, beauty from ashes, and even fruit where a seed was never planted. Because it was always based in faith. It was always based in this idea that I can do something because God is at work and I trust him. And Jesus is saying, if you really believed what you say you believe about me, then in the very least, you should have done the bare minimum. Whatever the bare minimum is, you should have done that. Even if your faith wouldn't allow you to do something bold, you should have just done, take it to the bank, give it to them, so that when I came back, you had something to give me. But by all means, don't do nothing. Just don't do nothing. Take a chance. And see what God can do. But many of us, out of fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of not succeeding, fear of not measuring up, name the fear, name the fear. Please, by God, name your fear. Because if you don't name your fear, God will never be able to conquer it with your faith. So we come to him. We understand who he is, but we don't want to be found wicked and lazy. We don't dare want that. We want to come to him and say, here I am. It's all yours anyway. Verse 28. This is perhaps the most mind-boggling piece of the whole thing. Jesus says, so take the bag of gold from him, the one who did nothing, and give it to the one who has 10 bags. This is like Robin Hood in reverse. Take from the poor, give to the rich. I like that gospel. This is so important, and I'm so glad Jesus said it, because 
There are two false teachings in the church in America today. One is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if you come to God in faith, you will be healthy, rich, and wise. I find it fascinating. I just read an article where Benny Hinn, of all people, is renouncing the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a lie. Jesus says, while in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples, every single one of them, were killed, except for John, He was boiled to death, but he didn't die. So he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation and later died a very old, broken man. But he died broke, poor, and in a lot of pain. Just because you give your life to Jesus Christ does not mean you will get healthy, rich, and wise. What it does mean is God, your Father in heaven, will always take care of you wherever you go. Yeah, you can clap for God, not me. I love when you guys clap spontaneously. Yeah, for God, not me. But this is huge because the other false lie is the poverty gospel. The more poor you are, the more God loves you. And there's nothing in scripture that says that. This story shows that it has to do with faithfulness. And it doesn't matter if you got five bags or two bags or one bag. It's all about what you do. And what I love about the story is Jesus flips what we tend to think of the model. Oh, God, God loves poor people so much that he's just all about poor people. No, no, no. God's about people. And different people have different abilities and different people have different resources and different people have different gifts. Praise God that he made us all different and we aren't all look the same. I'd be bored to death if everybody in the world looked the same. Praise God. In his wisdom, he knows our abilities. And praise God that he's paying attention. And praise God, he rewards faithfulness. Don't miss that. He rewards faithfulness. So then what does it look like next? Verse 30. Oh, I should read 29 first, sorry. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If I were like a scholar and just put on my Bible college hat for a second, I could bore you for hours about exactly who Jesus is talking about. Is he talking to us today? Is he talking about the Hebrew people of the day? Is he talking about 70 AD? And, and most of you are lost already, which is why I'm not gonna do that today. If you wanna know more about that, I could point you to some great books. What I will say is this application, these last two verses, has meaning for both the people in Jesus' day that he's talking to, and it has meaning for us today. If God is rewarding faithfulness, then what is he doing with this wicked, lazy servant? Does this verse here imply that we can buy our way into heaven? I hope you know emphatically that the answer is no. If you are new here, if you're visiting with us, if you're watching or listening online, we just finished up a series on Galatians a month or so back. It was in the summer of 2019. If you're listening online, go look it up. It was like June, July, 2019. Look it up and listen. 
because I don't have time to be super clear right now, but this week I got a text message from a guy and he's struggling. He said, man, I've made a number of mistakes in my life and I'm really having a hard time. Some of the things I'm reading, I'm wondering, how do I know I'm gonna get into heaven? Is it just like a crapshoot? Am I just taking a gamble and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong? And I said, no, absolutely not. It's not just that. Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me address this before I come back here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul addresses this because he says, look, if, our, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is for nothing. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, and that is the crux of our faith, that's why seven people are getting baptized into the name of Jesus this weekend. Because we believe Jesus did die, and Jesus did raise, our faith is not for naught. It means something. And since God rose Jesus from the dead, he too will raise us from the dead. We are not wasting our lives by trusting in him. Now, if you don't believe that, I want to go to lunch with you and talk about that. But if I do believe that, then I'm not wasting my life by going all in. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he will raise me from the dead as well. Therefore, I can trust him with every area of my life. And Paul says, go read 1 Corinthians 15 later. And since he rose one, he'll raise the other. Again, so then there's this saying that the way that I raise from the dead with Jesus is by giving all my money away? No. No. What it's saying is if I have been raised from the dead, from death to life, from dark to light, from no hope to hope, then I understand I want everybody in the world to know and experience that same story. I don't dare hoard that. I don't dare keep that to myself. I want everybody to know the name of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the light, the life of Jesus. I want everybody to know, no matter the cost to me, I want everybody to know. And if I don't, I'm really no better than a wicked, lazy servant. And all it reveals is that I didn't really know him anyway. This servant was not cast out of the kingdom of God because of what they did. They weren't in the kingdom of God. Because if they were, they would never have lived that way. And that is offensive for Jesus to say, how dare he? except that he's God. Listen, I know some of you sitting there are squirming. I know you are. Because when I first got confronted with this reality, I wanted to make it say something it wasn't saying. Because it makes me uncomfortable to wrestle with it. And I can't answer the questions for you individually. But let me ask you some annoying questions that might help guide you. What are you doing with your home to partner with bringing heaven to earth? What are you doing with your car? Are you accumulating and hoarding stuff in your life and there's other people who don't have enough? When you look at your 401k, your bank account, or your credit card debt, does it say that you're partnering with God to bring heaven to earth or does it say that you're living a really nice, comfortable life do you have any margin in your life, in your time, in your prayers, in your bank account to do something that would bring heaven to earth to help other people know the love of God? If you don't have great answers for these things, don't let a moment pass before you get on your knees and say, God, I don't want this to be true of me. I want to be found where you are. 
One of my greatest weak, uh, pains, struggles, angsts as a pastor is that one day I'll stand before my father accountable for all of you. And I'll say, God, I, I, I did my best, but I, I just, maybe I should have been more bold. Maybe I should have been more in your face. Maybe I should have yelled or spit more or something. I don't know, we're gonna take communion later. I hope not. Maybe I should have done something. I don't know how to be clear, church. Please, if you're watching online, know this. I'm not saying this to hurt anybody. I'm saying this because I love you. And I don't want a day to come where you stand before your heavenly father and he says, what were you thinking? Wicked or lazy servant. I want him to look at you and say, well done, good, faithful. But I get it. It's really easy, it's really easy to have really good excuses, isn't it? When, when Billy Edmonds, our former executive director, first got to Kingsway, he came to me and he said, Pastor, we just, if you were here, we had this big mission Sunday and a bunch of people signed up. I think we need, to lead, need you to lead a mission trip. And I looked at him and said, I can't lead a mission trip because why not? I said, I've, never, I've only been out of the country to pick up my son from Taiwan and bring him home and to go to Canada, which is really like diet America. It's not really like going out of the country. And he said, Pastor, you lead a church of thousands of people. You mean you can't take 20 of them to a foreign country? I said, well, can I start by going like maybe downtown to, 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 to you know, it's like serve in, a, in, a, in a, you know, one of the shelters or something? And he's like, Matt, you led a student ministry of 120 teenagers and you took them to camp. You're telling me you can't take 20 adults yeah, but my schedule is really, really full. I got three little ones at home. My wife is already super busy with my schedule being a pastor. He's like, then we'll give you some extra time off. Like every really good excuse I came up with, he shot down to where I finally just said, I'll pray about it, which is a great way of saying, I don't wanna deal with it. I'm gonna ignore it and I'm gonna pray about it, right? Come on, you've been there. That's what you're saying right now. Can we end the service already? I just wanna, I'll go pray about it. I promise you, pastor, I'll pray about it. And I tried to put it off, and I tried to put it off, but what happened in the gap was God kept annoying me. You know what I'm saying? Kept irritating me. And I kept saying, but God, but God, but God, but God, but God. And he said, you have no excuses. So a couple years ago, I took a group to Peru. And uh, this is so cool. I hope I can make this cool. And uh, the girl who was on stage doing announcements, her name's Danielle, her and her husband are amazing. It was a last minute ad. I'm looking, I went to all the men, my men's groups that I led, said, hey, can I take you? And I, will you guys go to Peru with me? And some said yes, some said no. And uh, we had two amazing ladies, like stalwarts at our church who were going. But I'm like, I need more women on this trip. So I just went to a couple staff members. Danielle was one of them said, I need some women to go on this trip. Would you go? And, and Danielle was like, yeah, can I take my husband? So her husband decided to go last minute. And it was just crazy what God did through them. And there's more to that story than I could tell you today. There's just so crazy what God did. And I can't wait for you to hear the rest of their story someday. And last service, Catch this, one of the guys who went with us on this trip, his name is Kyle Krober. You might have seen his big beard. Kyle's our new Avon campus pastor. And this year, Kyle led a trip. So two guys coming out of that trip, Nate Mishler and Kyle Krober, led a trip back to the same place in Peru. And last service, Kyle baptized a guy he took with him on the trip to Peru. Yeah. That's so cool. And here's what blows my mind. What if I had just said no? What if I said, God, I can't. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. How am I gonna get the resources? I was adamant. I don't wanna go to the church and raise money for this because it's not, it's not fair. This needs to be something I do outside of here. And God brought every single dollar. Okay, God. And now there's fruit coming from one small sacrifice. 
And I want you to see that. I want you to experience that. And church, I want you to know something else. Your investment is working. We've had over 500 kids and their parents visit since January this year. Over 300 kids, over 200 adults. That's just people with kids. There's a whole bunch of you who don't have kids. We don't know if you're here yet or not, unless you take our classes. We don't know that you're here, but we're glad you're here. Your investment is working. God is changing lives. But our studies say only about half of you give anything to this church. There's no guilt trip in that. There isn't. Because some of you give in many great places outside of here. God bless you. Keep going. It's just that when we stand up and celebrate, you get to sit and watch and go, oh, that's so cool that other people are getting to take part. And I don't want you to miss out on the joy of your master's happiness. I want to read one last quote. We're going to end with a time with God. It comes from Randy Alcorn in The Treasure Principle. He says this, God wants your heart. He isn't looking just for donors for his kingdom. Those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples immersed in the causes they give to. He wants people so filled with the vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their money, their time, and their prayers where they will matter most. And that's what I want for you. So I realize this is awkward and uncomfortable and every time we talk about money, I made somebody mad somewhere. My prayer is not that you'll get mad at me, but you'll get mad at God and you'll be with him and let him lead you, which is what I want him to do right now. We're gonna go into communion. I'm gonna pray. You're gonna see tables set up all across the room and up there. This is time for you to engage with God. The Colts game isn't starting yet. You have about an hour, okay? Don't rush this moment. Please don't try to sneak out, okay? This is your chance to be with God, to sit with him, to hear from him. We're gonna come back and do a song after a few minutes of communion. You'll notice a black box on the table. Just go ahead and drop your, your offering, your, your gift back to God in there. Say, here it is, God, here's my portion. And just be with God. And listen, if God's doing something in you, you need God to show up in your life in some way. Do you need to convict you? You're feeling convicted. Feel free to use the front of the stage. Feel free to grab a friend. Sit where you are. Take your communion back to your seat if you want. Just sit and be in his presence while we worship him. Our connect team will be down here. If you wanna come to one of them and say, I need prayer, I need help, I need something, go to them. We're ready, but don't rush this space. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that offends us because that means you're a good dad. A good dad tells his children what they need to know and not what they want to hear. So thank you. There's really no beating around the bush or it's really not unclear at all, Father. My prayer right now is that you would find us to be five talent and two talent people who immediately go and do all we can with what you've given us to accomplish your purposes and bring heaven to earth. We love you and we thank you. And we're so thankful for you. Teach us to use our homes and our cars and our clothes and our towels and our bank accounts and our prayers and our time and our energy to bring heaven to earth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say